You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Predrag Gretzky. He's the author of the Cargo Sember Checks tool for detecting accidental semantic versioning mistakes in Rust packages, as well as Trustfall, which is an incredibly flexible query engine for querying just about anything. We talk about why semantic versioning is so especially tricky to get right in Rust, trade-offs in different package managers' approaches to Semver in general, and how his work on Cargo Semver Checks motivated him to create a tool for querying data in just about any format. And now, the Semver rabbit hole. Fredrog, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. All right. One thing I wanted to ask you about is you've been doing a bunch of work on enforcing semantic versioning in Cargo for Rust, which basically implies figuring out when something is or is not a breaking change inside of a package. Do I have that right? That's right. So how did you get into that? Semantic versioning is one of those things that nobody really thinks about until you get bitten by a downstream, uh, an upstream crate that subtly broke something, maybe didn't notice it, published the release, and now your build is the problem. Your build is not green anymore, and now it's your problem to debug. You know, you have the hot potato. Right. This has been a well-known problem in the Rust community. People have uh, tried several ways to solve it, but none of those solutions really stuck, and it ended up being, in a funny way, a data problem more than a rules problem. Huh. Semver in Rust has a whole bunch of non-obvious edge cases, but those are not generally the ones that trip people up. It's generally that the rules are, are understandable, but the ecosystem is not necessarily designed from the ground up to make semantic versioning easy. And so mm. attempting to bolt it on later ended up with a lot of solutions that worked really well on day one and then required continuous maintenance to keep working, you know? I see. So this is uh, my main experience with enforced semantic versioning is in the Elm community because Elm package enforces it. But it's a way easier problem in Elm because Elm is a way simpler language than Rust. And so the way that it works in Elm is basically it's just it's all about types. It's like if you make a change that could cause types to you know, stop building, in other words, like a type incompatible change or you delete a function or unexpose it or something like that, then that has to be a major breaking change. And otherwise, the rule is if you didn't change any types at all, then it's a patch change. And if all you did was add things, then it's a minor change. But I'm trying to think what... Now, Rust obviously has a type checker, but there's a bunch of other things on top of that. And I'm kind of curious, what are (laughs) some of the edge cases that you ran into beyond just like, are the types compatible? Right. So a very common one is something called auto traits. So you might be familiar with the Rust type system and how it enables like concurrency. Right. So send and sync are the most common examples of auto traits. There are some less well-known ones as well related to panic safety. So which data structures are you allowed to touch and read data from if you're currently caught a panic and you're in the middle of dealing with it? Oh, um, I didn't know that was actually part of the type system. It huh. is. And you'd be surprised how many people break Semver by breaking panic safety on, on types. So what ends up happening is that you have these situations where the Rust compiler has decided that some of your types are thread safe in particular ways or panic safe in particular ways. The rules for this are relatively straightforward. If you have a struct, your struct is send and sync if all of the things that it uses under the hood are also send and sync. So this is the rule that the compiler uses to determine whether your struct also implements send and sync. So this is why it's called an auto trait, right? You never explicitly decided to implement it. The compiler decided that you could implement it and therefore you did. Right. I mean, you you can explicitly do it, but yeah, it's a lot less common. Almost always it's auto. Yeah. Almost all of the time, 
people's types are send and sync when the compiler has decided that they're allowed to be. But once you've published one of these types, send and sync are now part of your Semver contract. Same with right. panic safety. And so you could, under the hood, make a change in a private field or in a type that itself has a private field downstream yep. and break this you know, Semver guarantee that you've given, maybe not even completely intentionally. So a good example is if you had a string field in Rust that was owned, and now you turned it into a ref-counted string. Okay. So RC of stir is not send and sync, right? Because that reference count is not atomic. And this is a private field. So you're thinking, I'm good, right? I changed an internal implementation detail. Who cares? And the answer is whoever was de depending on that type being send and sync cares because that type is no longer send and sync. Right. So basically, and, and this is actually a good example of, I mean, I, I think sometimes people think about automatic Semver enforcement as sort of a pain and an, an annoyance. But this is a case where it's much better if this breaks. Because if it doesn't, like the consequence would be either you would have to say, oh, that's a non-breaking change. We'll just upgrade you and guarantee somehow that your code will still compile. Well, the whole reason that there is that check on that is that if you have a non-atomic ref count and you do use code in a multi-threaded environment, the ref count can get wrong and really bad things can happen. So yeah, with race conditions. So it is saving you from a race condition. Absolutely. Or even use after free, which has security implications. Even worse. Yeah, for sure. And so the consequence of, you know, making that uh, go from being thread safe to being non-thread safe, I guess in a lot of languages, that's not considered a breaking API change. But I mean, I think it's better if you do consider it a breaking API change. It's like this is this really dramatically restricts how you can use this thing, like this entire categories of applications where it's not safe to use anymore. Absolutely. And this is a change that is important, not only to uh, downstream packages that use you as a dependency, it's also important for the maintainer to realize that they're making this change. So the point of cargo Semver checks is not to prevent you from doing the thing that you wanted to, just to make sure that your whatever changes you've made in your API are intentional things that you've considered and you've appropriately messaged downstream to the people that use your crate. Yeah. Right. So it's totally fine if you want to make this breaking change, but it is a breaking change and you have to let users know about it because what you don't want is for them to run cargo update and now their package is broken because your package, you know, accidentally did something. Right. That's just a lose-lose for everyone, right? It ends up being a fire drill. Lots of issues are opened. Lots of projects don't build. Now you're panicking as the maintainer. This is just best avoided in general. Yeah, I'm curious what you think about. So whenever I think about semantic versioning, I'm always reminded of this Rich Hickey talk where he talks about Basically, he thinks Semver is a bad idea. And in particular, he thinks the, the bad idea part of it is the major version number. And his view is essentially that you should not ever make a backwards incompatible change and keep the same name. If you're going to make a backwards incompatible change, pick a new name, call your thing a different thing. Even if it's 99% the same as the old thing, it's just a fundamentally different thing now. Well, I'm curious what you think about that. I think this is more or less how Rust approaches semantic versioning anyway. At the language level, you mean? At the language level, yes. Because yeah. you can depend on multiple major versions of the same crate at the same time in the same project. And yeah. in fact, Cargo Semver Checks does this internally for some very interesting reasons we can get into in a bit if you like. <laughs> so in a sense, every major version in of a Rust crate is essentially a brand new name, yeah. right? It will not upgrade you automatically past a major version boundary. You can use more than one of it. 
it's just kind of a, you know, namespace grouping more than it is a, you know, just a version bump like it would be in Python or, or something like that. And I think that's a really critical distinction because one way to think about what Rich Hickey is talking about there is you should never break backwards compatibility is what he's saying. But another way to look at it is, okay, if you're just saying that as soon as you feel the need or feel the desire to break backwards compatibility, what you should do instead is pick a new name. Well, really, what's the difference between saying the name I picked is the old name plus two at the end and saying it's the old thing version 2.0.0. And I think the difference is that in a lot of languages, they don't do what Rust does, where they don't treat these as totally separate artifacts. And I think a really good example of where that distinction matters is if I have two unrelated packages that both expose a type that happens to have the same name, but I'm qualifying them by the same you know, crate name, those are not type compatible by default. So like I can't just mix and match. And if I have a function that accepts one, I can't just give it the other one. Similarly, if I have two, at least in Rust, if I have two packages that have the same exact package name, everything about them is the same, but they have different major versions, that same thing is still true. I still cannot treat their types, even if they're the same name, as interchangeable. Whereas if I have two versions of the same package that are the same name and uh, they have different minor versions, then Cargo is, I believe what it does is it just says, I'm going to pick one of those two minor versions. I'm going to pick the highest one that you need. And then we're going to use that across the board. And now those types are compatible. Right. And there's a somewhat little known trick in Rust that allows you to opt into treating the same type across different major versions of the same package as the same type. Risky. It's called the Semver trick. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> it's not super well known, but it, mechanically it works something like this. So you publish version two of your crate. Uh -huh. You also have a previous version one, let's say, or 1.1. And you'd like to make it so that the parts of the API that haven't changed are compatible between v1 and v2. Oh, sure. Okay. Right. Maybe to make interoperation easier in exactly the situation where you have multiple major versions in the same crate and you'd like them to be able to talk to each other. Right. The way this works is, is the following, and it's a little bit surprising. You publish a new version of the v1 lineage of your crate. So you publish maybe v1.2, for example. Okay. And in v1.2, you depend on version 2 of your own crate. Whoa. Which is wild, right? You're like, oh my goodness, I'm depending on myself from the future. <laughs> yeah. And then instead of defining the type in its own crate, you say, actually, my type is just a type alias for v2's type of the same name. And then you re-implement your own functions in terms of v2. Or you just, you know, proxy them directly, right? Because they're already implemented in V2. Well, sorry, I'm assuming they're, uh, yeah, that, that's what I mean. Like, yes. Right. Like if you have some functionality that's in V1, but not in V2, then you re-implement right. in terms yes. of V2. Wow, that's wild. Right. I never thought of that. Yeah, and so that way, your users can just cargo update and they'll grab the new 1.2 release. And then they'll also be forward compatible with V2 as well. I wish I'd thought of that years ago. That's a... <laughs> That's a really cool idea. Well, th so this is relevant to me because in Rock, I was asking myself the same question of, I really want to enforce semantic versioning the same way Elm does, but at the same time, I also want to make it possible to have something that I've missed in Elm that I like about Rust is that I can depend on multiple different major versions of the same thing, which is nice when I'm doing an incremental upgrade of a large code base. I can have some parts of the code base use V3 and then other parts of the code base are still on V2 and it's fine right. as long as they don't need to like share types or something like that. But that's really cool. I mean, so yeah, but, but then my worry, of course, is that if you don't have a way to 
incrementally go between those two when you need to share types, then you know, you're still kind of stuck. And that's a really cool solution to that. Well, yeah, thanks for teaching me that. <laughs> I really love it. And it's very non-obvious. I mean, I literally have been thinking about this category of problems for years and I never thought of it. So <laughs> thanks. That's really cool. Okay. The biggest difficulty in checking semantic versioning in Rust is not implementing the rules for Semver, even considering auto traits, even considering weird edge case situations like uh, the one that I, I recently published a blog post about where you could add a private import or a private type and that by itself can break your create semantic versioning guarantees. You know, it could be a major breaking change downstream. You know, these rules are, are complex, but there are people that understand them really well and they can be implemented in code. That's not the hard part. Okay. The hard part is that you have many rules that you need to implement and also that the data set over which you're implementing these rules keeps changing all the time. Sure. Right. Rust, the language itself keeps evolving. It keeps adding new features. You know, we're seeing a lot of the work around like, you know, async functions and traits and, you know, return position, infiltrate and things like that. So many of the tools for checking Semver use is called Rust doc. This is the tool that generates docs RS documentation and it also has a mode to output that same essentially documentation as JSON. Mm -hmm. And this JSON format exists and it's wonderful. It has a lot of really nice stuff, but it's also unstable because the language keeps evolving. And so we can't ever really say that it's completely, you know, put it in a box, it's feature complete and, you know, open and shut case. I see. So what you really don't want to do is say, hey, we've implemented all of these rules in a way that is very sensitive to changes in this underlying format. Because then you run into, oh, oops, the format changed, <laughs> and now we need to go and re-implement all of the rules again. Got it. Yeah. Right? That makes sense. I mean, we have a similar, well, interesting set of questions around like how effects are handled in Brock. And sometimes some implementation details can be successfully hidden, and it's fine, and you don't need to make it a breaking change. But when you have sort of a coordination problem there, where it's like the person who's saying, I depend on this being implemented in some way is not the same. You have a dependency on two things. One is on that and the other is on the implementation. Then yeah, it's really important that those line up. So that makes sense. Right. And so what you really don't want to end up with is a sort of n times m problem where you need to support multiple of these versions because different versions of Rust emit a different version of Rust doc.json. Mm-hmm. And then also m different checks that all have to be implemented differently. And when I say this format is unstable, you know, it's not unstable in the sense of like, oh, you know, like once every edition, it changes. No, it's more like, you know, I've seen it change three times in one week. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and granted, that was a more extreme, you know, sort of case. So let's just say it's changed, I think, something like seven or eight or nine times in the almost a year that Cargo Sanford Checks has existed. Really? That's faster than I would have guessed for Rust's usual pace of... Uh... Well, I guess, I mean, they, they do a release every six weeks, so. Right. But still, for something that, you know, can be depended on by a third party, it seems uh, like a surprisingly fast pace of change. It wasn't really ever intended to be depended on by a third party. And so this is like one of those Hiram's Law situations. Any any observable behavior of the system that can be depended on will be. <laughs> kind of. And, and the Rust doc team has been very explicit that, you know, any use of the JSON interface is, you know, you're signing yourself up for breakage. You should expect it. You know, you should design with with that in mind and, and stuff like that. It's just that, you know, Semver is just so painful that there have been attempts to bind to unstable interfaces, whether the nightly compiler internals themselves or Rust doc JSON or things like that. And so what has really hindered prior attempts to solve the, the Semver problem is that maintainability problem, hmm. right? 
the Rust doc version changed. Okay, we need to rebuild the lint. Okay, I need to build a new lint. I need to be aware of the Rust doc internals. Okay, how does this interface with, you know, async functions and traits in return position, infiltrate and traits, <laughs> and all sorts of, you know, edge cases that are continuously being discussed and added to the language. And well before they hit the stable releases, they hit the nightly releases, which means that Rust doc needs to support them. So you're kind of exposed to all of the innovation in the Rust doc ecosystem. I see. And you have to have an answer for that, right? Right. Out of curiosity, do you know if anyone on the Rust team has ever talked about, I mean, I assume it would be off the table to say we're going to make it an error if you're trying to publish something and it's going to break Sember because that would just break so many packages historically. But you know if they've ever talked about introducing like a warning as like a built-in thing to Cargo? Yes, I've actually been in touch with members of the Cargo team. Nice. And uh, I've gotten a bunch of help from them. The goal that we've both agreed on makes a lot of sense is for Cargo Sember checks to stop being this third-party tool and to just become a thing that Cargo just runs for you. Nice. Right before it does Cargo publish. That's awesome. So right now there's this flag called dash dash allow dirty that allows you to publish a crate with a dirty git state. You know, one way that, that you could see this working is Cargo Publish will warn you if it thinks that you're about to break Sember. And maybe there's, you know, dash dash allow break or something like that that allows you to overwrite it. So something that Elm does, which I highly recommend if you're having those conversations is, so in Elm, there's a command called Elm bump. And it basically says, take my current version and bump it to whatever you think the next one is, whether that's minor, uh, major or patch. And then it'll like tell you that. Also, you can do Elm diff and it'll just diff the API. So then it'll say like, hey, this is major and here's why. Here's the diff of your API with the, the most recently published one. You can also give it two versions if you want to diff their two APIs. Definitely. The concern there is that Cargo Sember Checks right now implements a very small set of all of the possible ways that you could break Sember. Uh-huh. And so, you know, just because it thinks that the next suitable version is minor as opposed to patch doesn't mean that you haven't made a breaking change that it can't catch. I see. Okay. What are some, uh, now I'm curious, what are some juicy ones that are kind of, you know, on your radar but not implemented yet? <laughs> Yeah, the biggest one that people run into a lot is if you just change the type of a function, you know, parameter or return, Cargo Sember checks can't catch that right now. Oh, okay. And that's an unfortunate one, right? Everyone's like, oh my goodness, why haven't you implemented this? I, I bet it occurred and to you. The answer is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. The answer is, you know, you can handle the simple cases really easily. Like if it used to return a number and now it returns a string, right? That's very obvious. Sure. But when is, you know, oh, it used to return a number and now it returns a generic that looks and feels like this, you know, or it takes a generic uh, instead of a number. There are cases where this is breaking, but not major, which is its own can of worms in Rust. Wait, what's, um, and there are obviously cases where this is major uh, and they're they're all difficult. What's breaking, but not major? So, for example, there are cases where you can break inference. Oh, interesting. Um, and that's considered breaking but not major. So if you have a situation where inference was sort of helping you out to make the code compile, you could make a change that breaks that inference downstream. And this is considered not major because of sort of two reasons. One is it would be extremely onerous to not do it this <laughs> yeah. way, to, to you know be worried about breaking inference because there is so many places where inference yeah. fires. The other reason is that the downstream code could have been written in a form that is more explicit and doesn't rely on inference. And so it would be sort of unfair to penalize the publisher of the crate for a lack of language affordance, you know, on the on the user side, right? If inference were smarter, maybe you could figure it out anyway. Sure. Yeah. And, and like maybe in the future it might be. <laughs> exactly. Right. 
Yeah, I also forgot about that because Elm, like, it's just the inference always works. So that's not even a case that comes up. Um, right. But yeah, Rust. Rust. Traits, traits make everything complicated, auto and otherwise. Yeah, so we actually have something similar to traits in Rock, and we've managed to do it in a way where, as far as we know, it still preserves inference. But, that's awesome. uh, you know, we, we, like I, I say, as far as we know, because we don't have like a formal proof of it or anything. And as far as we know, we're also the first ones to use a system like that. And we do have some auto stuff, but that is, it's sort of explicit. Like, for example, we automatically, uh, like in Rust, you can say deriving eek to say, like, give me an equals implementation. Right. In Rock, we automatically do that for you for all the structural types. So, like, numbers, strings, and records of those, and tag unions of those, and tuples of those, and all that. Kind of like what Rust does with tuples. And so, uh, yeah, but everything ends up being, e- even if you didn't write anything down, it's pretty well understood, uh, like, what those rules are. Yeah, that's cool. So something else I was curious about is some number of years ago, uh, I'm going to say it was at least five years ago, Andre Stoltz wrote this article about something he called Comver, which is an alternative to Semver, and it's called compatibility version. It's a very simple idea. It's basically like Semver has major, minor, and patch, and Comver just has breaking and non-breaking. So it's it's like X dot Y. And so the first digit is you have to increment it whenever you have a major change, uh, a breaking backwards incompatible change. And then for all other changes, you increment the second number. And kind of the idea there is that the distinction between I'm releasing a new feature versus I'm making something that doesn't add any new, you know, change to the API is not that interesting. What's interesting is, is it breaking or not? I'm curious what you think about that. Is, is that something you thought about or? Yeah, this has somewhat come up in, in some conversations around Cargo Sound for Checks uh-huh. as well. So not all users care about, you know, some of the minor lints, for example, Rust considers Rust is perhaps too too broad of a word, but in general, many users would prefer that if I upgrade from one patch to the next, I shouldn't be greeted with any new lints from the compiler or, or otherwise. You know, many oh. users run with warnings turned into errors in CI, for example. Interesting. Okay. And so, if you triggered a new lint uh, by adding "must use" as an attribute on something or by deprecating something. Many users would expect that to be a minor change. Uh, I don't believe there's a formal position that the Rust language itself has taken on this. Cargo Sanford Checks just does deprecations and must use, should be minor, but also offers a way to, to turn this off by passing a flag. You basically can tell it, you know, treat every change as minor, and then those just don't get checked. So minor means already means more than just... So like in Elm, what it means is minor means you added something. And patch means right. you didn't add anything and there's no breaking changes. But it sounds like Rust has a different definition of minor. Rust is perhaps too broad of a term, but you know the, uh, okay. the <laughs> desires of, of many people that write Rust, I am probably one of them, is that you know, if I didn't bump the, mi- the minor version of the crate, I should not you know, see new lints. I see. You know, new warnings in my build. Interesting, okay. So for example, you know, I would try in my own crates to only deprecate things on minor steps and to actually remove them at, on major steps. Huh. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, deprecation is an interesting case. Like Elm doesn't have a first class deprecation concept. So yeah, I'm trying to think what, what would I want if, uh, like a thing that I like about Elm system is that I have reasonable confidence. There is one kind of exception, which is uh, if I import everything from one package and I import everything from another package and then I bump the minor version on one of those, like, or sorry, I import a new uh, minor bump of one of them, I could now theoretically have a namespace conflict locally because of a new thing that was added. But without one exception, 
it's otherwise true that I can always upgrade my minor version and be quite confident that my build's going to pass and I'm not going to get, you know, partly this is because Elm doesn't have built-in linting. So that's not a concern either. But yeah, with deprecation, I, yeah, I can see arguments for not wanting that to be major because that's kind of the whole point of deprecation is that it's like, well, if you're, if it's going to be a major change, just delete it. But on the other hand, wanting to try and maintain the guarantee of, you know, if I can bump the Viner version and it's not going to break my build. And I can also see wanting to say, well, if it's deprecated, the whole point is, you know, I want to get a warning in my build and maybe fail the build. So that's tricky. And the kinds of glob imports that you just mentioned, where you import everything from a package or from a namespace, uh, also produce all sorts of weird and wonderful edge cases in, in <laughs> Rust. And you can break semantic versioning in in all sorts of incredible ways. Oh, yeah? uh, like I mentioned, I, I wrote a blog post recently where just adding an import can actually break Crate's public API if the import that you added explicitly happens to override something that is glob re-exported. Oh, re-export from a yeah. module. <laughs> right yeah so pub use with a glob is extremely dangerous and because it's very sensitive to what names are explicitly defined in that scope right wow i didn't think of that uh and i know this because it actually has bitten someone in practice in the real world really yes uh unfortunate but true so uh, (laughs) i recently wrote a blog post about this where i you know explained what the issue is you know went through through the entire history you know uh did some analysis and you know what are the different unfortunate interactions that you could have between different glob exports? And we ended up with, you know, several different Rust lints, you know, cargo server check update for name handling, things like that. This is one of those things that severely benefits from automation. Yeah. Because I'm just not going to check whether I'm shadowing something from a glob re-export every time I define a new name in a local scope, right? That's just... Yeah. Spooky action at a distance is what's breaking the API here. So it's just unfair to, to humans to make them, you know, do this step manually every time. Yeah, I buy that. Um, that's kind of the approach we've taken in Rock also. But uh, well, sorry, we've taken the lean into automation approach by which is, I mean, we just don't have globs. Uh, you can't glob import or export right. anything. And so if you want to pull in absolutely everything from somewhere, then the assumption is editor tooling can make that very fast in the future. And then you do that once and then everything is explicit and none of these problems happen. I think that's a very (laughs) reasonable take. Yeah, that's super interesting. Just how many edge cases there can be around something as theoretically simple as semantic versioning. Yeah. And you mentioned Convert earlier. I just wanted to to mention something that, that came to mind that a lot of these versioning schemes are very publisher centric Hmm. rather than consumer centric okay right so what's a breaking change for you might not be a breaking change for me because if there is a giant crate that we both depend on anything that breaks any of the api that's a major version for that crate but what if i use one corner of it and you use a different corner right one of us might be broken and the other one doesn't have to be right i mean it happens all the time that i'll upgrade something to a new major version i don't change anything and my code still compiles and works exactly so Something that I'm hoping to get to eventually, maybe with with this tooling, is a more consumer-centric view of of versioning, where you can say, hey, has anything changed in any of the bits that I care about? And if the answer is no, then I should be able to just upgrade to the next major. And I say should be because, you know, there might be under the hood behavior changes that, you know, you should just read the change log for and, and things like that, right? We haven't solved that pesky halting problem yet. Uh, I don't know what the holdup is. You'll have to ask someone else. Right. 
But in principle, we should be able to get substantially farther than we're getting to right now by leaning into automation and making these kinds of, dare I say it, queries over APIs <laughs> cheaper and easier to run. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that that you would want to be able to very quickly and easily answer the question, uh, if I upgrade to this major version, is my code right here that I have right now going to actually get a build error or is it that whatever's changed in there is not going to affect me? That would be a nice thing to know, especially because uh, like a separate sort of line of questioning that I, I don't know, kind of curious about is there's a lot of cultural differences between languages and also a lot of different opinions people have about uh, version ranges versus pinning versions and then also version selection. I think like the a, a major, I don't know if innovation is the right word, but like maybe a, a major like new approach because uh, I think innovation implies that it's like, an well, I'm not saying it's an unalloyed good, but you know, certainly it's a controversial way to do things is uh, goes like minimum version selection. And there's also some people who will say you should always pin all your versions. And there's other people who will say you should always have version ranges. Some people will say version ranges should not be allowed to include like cross major versions. Other people say it should kind of curious. I mean, again, it seems like you've spent a lot of time thinking about these things. What do you think about version ranges and what policies people should go by and version selection and that type of stuff. Definitely. I think there are two things that are very important to keep in mind here. One is the answer might be different from language to language. Okay. So for example, if your crate re-exports another crate's API, either explicitly or implicitly, you know, so some of the types maybe leak through, then your ranges should not include multiple majors of the underlying because the solver in Rust will always be able to solve for the maximum version. And so the minimum version, you know, the previous major, for example, will just never be selected. And this can and will break you. And it will break your dependence. So Cargo Sanford Checks has been on the receiving end of, of a couple of these breaks. <laughs> um, and, and that's just unfortunate. And this is not really the fault of the maintainers of those crates that we are very grateful for you know their their work and we use a lot of functionality that we can just take for granted because somebody spent a lot of time and effort on, on building sure but it's just you know this is how the language works and so it's just a behavior that we should all be aware of while making decisions on, on how to include dependencies so that's one of the the two things the other thing I think that's important to mention is that versioning and things like that are primarily about communication hmm. It's about me as the publisher of a crate attempting to communicate to you as the user of the crate what you should be able to expect from that version and how that might be different to the previous version, whether that's a minor or a major or something right. else. And those norms, again, might be completely different in, in different communities because of language differences or, or things like that. And there doesn't necessarily have to be one right answer. The right answer is whatever will least surprise your users, you know, whatever will make them the least unhappy, whatever would be the least painful. Yeah. And so there's a role here for tools to not only shape the, the discourse by asking the right sorts of pointed questions like, hey, are you sure you didn't remove any functions that existed in the previous version when you're not publishing a major? <laughs> you know, all the way to, well, this isn't technically breaking, but your users will not be happy to, to see this change. And so maybe this is still a good idea to publish as a new major, even though the rules maybe allow you to, to call it, you know, breaking but not major, for example, in Rust, like the inference situation that we were talking about. Right. Yeah, I, I've definitely done that myself where I have chosen to bump the major version number on a package, even though the API didn't change because I'm like, this behavior 
is going to be surprising to people and you know would would potentially break their implementations if they just kind of blindly upgraded without having checked uh, the release notes or something like that. Absolutely. And something that I'm I'm really wondering are there situations where we could take some of these rules where an engineer like you or me might exercise judgment to call something a major even though it technically didn't have to be and then extract that expertise and distill it into some automation that we can then check in into a custom automated tool for our project or for a company's projects or something like that. Yeah, I was actually thinking of sort of the inverse of that a second ago, which is you mentioned earlier that idea of could you have some automated tooling that could say, okay, this for me is not a breaking change. I wonder if you could also similarly have tooling that would say, not only can I tell you whether this change affects you from an API perspective, I can go dig into the implementations and I can actually tell you that this change is going to unaffect you. Like this change doesn't change any code path that you're using whatsoever. It's going to be, it's all the changes is noise around you that you're not currently using. So that is 100% safe to upgrade to this package. Now I say that, but then I know that in some languages that's easier to claim than others. I mean, like in Rust, you have to be like, what if they change the global allocator? Did you think of that? You know, there's a lot of, it'd be really hard to make that claim in Rust, especially like, oh, what's, what if the build.rs file changed? I mean, I guess there would be a lot of things that could change that would just completely invalidate that, even though in practice you'd be fine. But I would imagine that there would be actually quite a lot of scenarios where you have a new change that's um, like a patch change that's just a bug fix in some function you're not using where it could say, hey, you don't even need to vet this change at all. I vetted it for you and it will not affect your code at all. You can just go ahead and upgrade uh, versus others where it's like, well, maybe you, you could expect that maybe some tests might fail of yours or you know, code might break in production, something like that. Or the flip side, you know, I've analyzed this API change and here's a code mod that I suggest applying together with this version upgrade Yeah, uh, that should resolve the breakage. And again, we might not be able to generate this in 100% of cases, but if we can generate it in, you know, even 80% of cases, that's a huge time savings across, you know, the ecosystem. You know, can you imagine if in Rust, you know, say like Tokyo released a new major, that would probably be you know easily hundreds of hours worth of patching all of the projects across the entire ecosystem that depends on tokyo and if we can automate away 80 percent of that that would be huge yeah so in a kind of way i'm what i'm really hoping for with congress ever checks and tools like that is to shift the perception away from oh building automation is really hard building this kind of tooling takes a lot of work it you know demands constant ongoing maintenance, you have to be, you know, on top of all of your Rust versions or, or whatever, and more toward a separation between what is the data set that I'm interested in querying? You know, is it the API? Is it the, how is it used in my project? You know, have some sort of interface there uh-huh. so that the people that are able to maintain this interface can do so in isolation from all of the use cases downstream of them. And all of the use cases like Cargo Sanford checks can just say, hey, here's a query can you find a function that doesn't exist in the new version, but did exist in the previous one? And the previous one is not a major version away. Right. Yeah. Right. And then you can just sort of have this happy separation where the people that make this, these queries run quickly are not necessarily (laughs) the same people that are writing the logic for what is it that we're looking for, whether it's Semver or how do we automatically upgrade or what's the code mod or, you know, can I do the Semver trick automatically or, you know, I'm scanning for security violations or, you know, vulnerabilities, and I can detect that 
yes, there's a CVE on this library, but no, it's not in any of the code paths that you're touching. So don't worry about it. Sure. Good example of when this would be uh, useful. So something we were talking about earlier briefly, and I'd like to dig into a little bit more is the question of, let's say I got multiple different major version numbers of a package out there in the wild. And we're doing the Rust thing where we say that means that they are effectively completely different packages. They just happen to have the same name. You mentioned the Semver trick, which lets you have one of the earlier versions sort of depend on a later version of itself so they can share code, which is cool, and have compatible types uh, if you're using both of them at the same time in your project. But I want to take that idea and apply it to the concept of version ranges. And so one of the things that happens if you have multiple different packages, uh, sorry, different the same package with multiple different major version numbers, and those are treated as different packages, is that it becomes pretty difficult to sort of make the claim or at least make the claim and then actually test, I guess, that, hey, my package depends on any one of these major versions. I can work with version one, version two, or version three, and my code is just going to work the same way, no matter which of those you have. What do you think about that as, as just like a for languages in general? Right. I think it's another area that could really benefit from a lot of tooling. Um, I think in Rust specifically, the answer is that just isn't a thing because the solver can always pick the the biggest version. Um, well, it can, but will that necessarily give you a good outcome, right? Right. And more importantly, the solver can't pick not the latest version. <laughs> sure. I guess is the, the correct way to frame yeah, this, yeah. right? And so you might not necessarily want that version because some other piece of code downstream maybe would like the older major Right. But in this case, there's just no choice. And this is just a compilation error. It's just statically a problem. Yeah. Well, so the the area that I'm more concerned with is let's say that someone publishes a package and they make the claim my package will work with these three major versions. Uh, But it turns out that's actually inaccurate. And when you go to publish, you know, maybe let's say you check against only one of the three and oh yeah yeah, it works there and you're pretty confident that it's going to work with the other so you just make that claim now suddenly even if you have as elm does you know the uh, like a check to make sure that like hey everything actually compiles before you're allowed to publish it um now you have the situation where somebody could publish something that yes if you're using a certain set of dependencies it works but actually if you're using another set of dependencies even the package itself doesn't compile that seems like a really hard problem to solve if you want to support the concept of version ranges that cross major version boundaries. Definitely. For my own projects, at least, I try not to use version ranges that span major version boundaries just because the outcomes are sort of unlikely to, to be very positive. Yeah. And again, with any sort of open source package, I really think an underappreciated part of it is how much of your energy is spent on maintenance versus adding new things or you know further improving the the user experience of using that package so i i believe in minimizing all of the you know manual testing burden that i have to do any of the maintenance costs to just keep up with with older things and and things like that uh so i've i've put in a lot of work for example into cargo server checks to make sure that Rust doc version bumps uh, are not breaking to the rest of the ecosystem and that we don't need to re-implement all the checks and that, you know, the people that write the checks don't have to worry about which of the multiple major versions of Rust doc uh, JSON we're actually using under the hood. And I think that, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, what we really want is a really solid abstraction in between that says, 
on the other side of this sits some version of the dependency, whether it's, you know, the Rustdoc JSON format or some, you know, other library that could be one of multiple major versions and just have that sort of separation between the code that cares about, you know, what is the actual representation of the data and how, how all of that works under the hood from how am I actually using this? Yeah, I like that. And I think if I were in that position, I would hope that my dependency that I'm depending on, and then to take a step back, I think I should have clarified that this, this only really matters if I'm exposing, well, the, the only reason I would want to make a major version range, a range that included a major version is if I'm exposing a type that includes that dependent, that comes from that dependency, such that it might right. break other people. And I mean, I think a, a plausible answer here is to say, and again, I'm, I'm thinking about this from like, you know, package manager for future rock package manager design, a plausible answer is to say, you're not allowed to cross major version boundaries. And if you make that rule, that really strongly incentivizes people who are making major uh, version bumps to do the Semver trick that you mentioned, so that uh, people who don't want to change their publicly, exp- like basically anyone who uses my package, I don't want to put them in a position where they have to use the older version of my thing and not upgrade to the new one, or else they have to do a major version because they're exposing a type that now has been coupled to my major version bump. But the Semver trick is a cool way to do that because now they can say, oh, well, I'm not going to actually upgrade to your new major version. I'm going to upgrade to the old or the you know 1.2 or whatever that re-exposes the type alias for 2.0 because it imports the package itself imports 2.0 and then makes 1.2 use the 2.0 types as its own internal alias. But although now that I think of that, that is a breaking change for the downstream library because if I depend on it and I'm exposing your type, that type has now changed from a you know 1.1 I should probably mention a specific type name. I don't know. Type foo. <laughs> yeah. Now, now we're getting specific. Type foo. Um, <laughs> there's version 1.1 of your package, which exposes foo. My package depends on foo. And in fact, some of my publicly exposed functions have foo in them. I want to upgrade to the new version of your thing without breaking backwards compatibility. I don't think the Semver trick helps me out there. Because if I'm exposing foo... I think it does. Does it? Okay. How, how would I... So the foo type in 1.0 and 1.2 is considered the same type because they're the same major. But even though the foo type in 1.2 comes from 2.0, actually, from the perspective of the type checker, because it also comes from 1.2, it's also the same foo as in version 1. Well, but I think if... uh, Oh, I see. Because the name is the same? Hmm. Yes, because you might have made another breaking change, right? Like if you have a, you know, foo colon colon new function. Uh Uh-huh. Right. If that has a breaking change, that's a breaking change and there's nothing you can do there. You know, Semver trick won't shield you from that breaking change. Sure. Right. But if you haven't done that and this type is just, you know, let's say something opaque that you just pass around, then it's the same type from the perspective of the type checker. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess that depends on whether. Hmm. I mean, it's, I, that, it, that could be true, but it could also be a different way that the type checker could implement it is to say okay, I see that this opaque type comes from a different package now. It was, like previously, this opaque type foo was defined in your package version 1.1. Now I see that this is no longer coming from your package at all. It's coming from your package version 2.0, which we're considering a totally different package. Therefore, those are incompatible. And just the fact that you're exposing a type alias to it, I mean, type aliases are transparent, so that doesn't really change the type. I see that this is now a 2.0 version of that type. 
And that's kind of what I would expect the compiler to do, except that it's very inconvenient in this specific case. <laughs> I think we might have to drop in a, a notebook or, or something like that just to test this out. Yeah, this is, a, it's a, this is a deeper rabbit hole. I have a suspicion that the the folks working on Rust in you know this particular corner of the language have thought about this this case and have come up with a good solution. Wait, more than we have in this ad hoc conversation, I find that hard to believe. Shocking. <laughs> uh, Rust has honestly had a lot of very carefully thought out stuff that I've found out only in retrospect, which only makes it more satisfying when you can find the case where, you know, adding a local import can break the public API somewhere else <laughs> every so often. Um, yeah, I mean, at the same time, also Rust is so complicated that there just have to be somewhere in there. There, there have to be issues like that. Uh, the Combinatorics is just <laughs> not something anyone can keep in their head. Exactly. I also think that another major important thing to, to consider with all of this discussion is not just communicating across package boundaries, but also communicating the norms of your package to other contributors. This kind of goes along similar lines as the, uh, you know, shape your shape your development process for having as low of a maintenance burden as possible. In this case, the maintenance burden is how often do I have to comment on pull requests to remind people that there's some policy, whether stated or unstated, about what kinds of changes we make and how we write our code and things like that. So, a banal example of this is auto formatting, which is, you know, hopefully just the answer is just use an auto formatter and, you know, more or less problem right. solved, right? But there are always invariants like, hey, do we use, you know, do our builders take a mutable reference to self or do they take self by value, for example, as a higher level sort of construct where having some sort of rule, some sort of automation that is easy to build would be super helpful. And so again, this kind of screams to me, in order to implement this rule, I shouldn't have to be a compiler's expert, a programming language's expert, you know, like know my way around tree setter or Rust analyzer or whatever. I just want to be able to write a query that says, hey, if there's a struct whose name ends in builder, make sure that any method on it called with something, you know, takes it by value and not by mutable reference or something like that. Yeah, this gets into um, on a previous episode, I was talking with Jeroen who works on uh, Elm Review, which is a, like a linting code review type tool for Elm. And that's exactly one of the use cases that he has in mind is sort of linting rules that are not like specific to the whole language, but rather maybe to a particular subdomain or even a particular project such as, yeah, like this is a convention that I just want to enforce within my project or something like that, even if it's not necessarily the entire ecosystem. But then again, I can also see when there's a lot of trade-offs about when you take something like that and try to apply it to the whole ecosystem, because then you have people who are like, well, I, I don't like this convention, so I'm just not going to name my thing Builder. I'm going to name it Constructor or something like that, which I guess in C++ would not work out well, but <laughs> but in Rust would be fine. <laughs> right. And similarly, I, I guess like with auto-formatting, it really kind of depends on the formatter, like Elm format and also Rock format. Uh, to me, the most important feature of an auto-formatter, which is there are zero configuration options whatsoever, but of course, as soon as you allow configuration options into your formatter, then there become questions about, oh, we should establish a convention for our convention setting tool as to which which <laughs> knobs you should <laughs> you should set, which you know <laughs> maybe reveals whether they should have configuration options or not. But yeah, that, that's another whole rabbit hole, I suppose. I really feel that there are sort of rules that are beneficial to have across the entire ecosystem. I think I agree with you that auto formatting is one of them. Uh, I also think that there's room for more project-specific or repo-specific rules that just aren't useful outside of a particular context, and so there's maybe no reason to ever check. Okay. Right? So 
things like any types that we expose from our library should be serialized and deserialized, or any mm. types that we export should be debug. Right now, you can implement these, but these require, you know, going to Clippy internals or static assertions through third-party libraries, which are undeniably cool, right? But most people don't know yeah. about these, and they're not particularly friendly. And I can't just say, oh, I learned one thing, and now I know how to do this in Rust and also in Python and also for any other sure. system. And also just happens to be the same language that I use to manipulate data wherever it might be coming from. Yeah. And so I have a lot of hot takes about you know data and ETL and things like that because that's the world that I, I came from. Uh -huh. Uh, you know, a common saying over there is this microservice could have just been a database query uh, <laughs> where a lot of these rules could have just been a database query. We just don't have the database. Right, right. And I don't think that's necessarily the way that we want things to be. I, I really feel like I already have all of this data. The fact that it's not organized in tables and columns and rows should not be a blocking you know, issue for me to be able to query it like a database, to have a query language over it where I master the one query language that lets me access all of this information, and then I write rules that say, look for exceptions to this, flag them, and then say, please don't do this. Yeah, that's really interesting. I honestly, at the beginning of this conversation, was not thinking about that. But I mean, you've raised a lot of different scenarios where something like that would be really helpful. And uh, it's, it's definitely getting me thinking about it. We already have this tool called Rock Glue, which it's, it's not that, but the way that it works is it's uh, intended to solve a particular problem of like rock is sort of designed to be sort of embedded in other languages and be good at that. And so you can say rock glue, and then you give it a dot rock file. Uh, and that dot rock files job is to basically describe how to spit out bindings for whatever language you're targeting. So if you're trying to call your rock program or your rock functions from C, it'll spit out dot C files that know how to talk to rock or dot rust or whatever. Um, at work, I'm doing right. this for TypeScript uh, at the moment. Uh, we're working on it. And what that .rock file that you give to rockloo gets is it receives as an argument a data structure that basically describes the like the types of your rock program and like what's exposed. And that's kind of the information that you need in order to you know build up your uh, whatever equivalent C code is that's that knows how to you know speak the same language as the rock code or whatever. So it takes that as an input and then as the output is the files that you want to write to the disk. So the cool part about this is that you don't have to write all the type checking stuff yourself. The rock compiler takes care of that. And it just says like, here you go. Here's a data structure that represents all the types in your program and all their names and all the everythings and all the information you need in order to like write bindings. So all you have to do is, you know, of course, the rock compiler doesn't know C or Rust or TypeScript or whatever future language, you know, you want to do it in. So it's this nice thing where it's taking care of all the stuff that is common to that category of problems of wanting to generate glue code and taking care of it for you and packaging it up in a really nice, nice little data structure. And then you can just focus on the part that's domain specific. And the reason I bring up all this is I wonder if there's some equivalent for what you're talking about, where um, there's this category of problems where uh, just creating some sort of, maybe it's not a script, uh, maybe it's not a data structure, maybe it's an entire database, uh, some way for you to just run queries on your code base. And the rock compiler is like, I do that all the time, except in very specific ways. So why don't I just expose a generic way for you to do it? And then you'll be able to write your own scripts that do things like semantic versioning checks or uh, various linting rules and whatnot. Very interesting idea. Yeah, you might be surprised to hear that I've actually started building this already. Uh, so it's a project called Trustfall. And one way to describe it to folks familiar with sort of programming languages and compilers is that it's kind of like LLVM for data sets. 
Okay. Uh, if you wanted to write Rust or if you wanted to write Swift and you wanted to also get support for x86 and also ARM and also, you know, other other architectures, you could do the whole n times m matrix by yourself, or you could just have an intermediate layer that you write against that intermediate layer and that intermediate layer handles the details underneath. Right. So this is part of the pitch for LLVM. Right. Uh, Trustful tries to do the same thing for data sets. Okay. So you have plugins for different data sets. Uh, they're called adapters. So essentially, if you have, you know, Rust doc JSON as one adapter, you know, you make it available for querying through Trustful. The code on the other side can write queries in Trustful's query language, which turns into Trustful IR. Right now, Trustful has its own query language, but in principle, you could see, you know, SQL sitting side by side with uh -huh. it, right? So plug your own front end. And this should be able to run over Rust doc JSON or over a SQL database or over, you know, rocks bindings for talking to other programming languages or against, you know, Semver, you know, as a database of, you know, what prior versions had as their APIs or anything like that. So I have a little demo up uh, that people can play with in a playground that just queries Hacker News or Rust Crates APIs where you can just run these queries in Trustfall's query language. Uh, I'm sure we can put a link in the in the show notes that, sure. that people can play yeah, with. Where can people find it? Uh, yeah, it's at play.predrog. So predr.ag, like my name. Thankfully, .ag is a, is a top-level domain. And play.predr.ag is the Trustful Playground that runs Trustful as WebAssembly in your browser. So you can see how hard you can hammer the Hacker News API by running a query like which GitHub or Twitter users are talking about stories uh, mentioning OpenAI, for example. Nice. Very cool. Why the name Trustfall? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, so I built this before the music album of the same name. Uh, so that kind of upended my, my SEO. <laughs> it's one of those sort of, this is a crazy idea, but if it works, it'll be huge projects, I think. I think, you know, 20 years ago, if someone proposed LLVM, they might have been dismissed easily as this will never, ever work. <laughs> it'll never, ever catch on. I actually started Cargo Sanford Checks as a way to prove that something like Trustfall would be valuable. So in Cargo Sanford Checks, every lint for a Sanford issue is written as a Trustfall query that looks for counterexamples. So you would quite literally, as a Trustfall query, write stuff like find types that existed in the previous version but don't exist in the new version. Right, right. And the separation here allows us to do things like speed up Cargo Sanford Checks uh, by 2,300 plus times without changing a single one of those queries, just by tweaking how the adapter is actually exposing the data set. Wow. So there was a workload that used to take over five hours to send for check a particular crate that now completes in 7.7 .7 seconds. Nice. And this is a crate that is 17 times bigger than the biggest crate uh, that everyone loves to complain about in, in Rust, which is SYN. The, you know, proc macro, you know, parse all of, oh, all of yeah, Rust. Yeah. So this is 17 times bigger. It's a gigantic crate. Previously, it had terrible scaling because it was all of n squared. Yeah. Tweaks on the adapter that are completely not noticeable when you're writing these queries just, you know, dropped that to O of n and massive speed up ensued. Nobody that writes queries, you know, nobody that contributed lints had to know anything about it. You know, everyone benefits from this optimization and any other use case that also wants to query Rust doc, for example, for their own use cases, whatever they might be, you know, local rules enforcement or whatever also benefits from the same kind of speed up, right? So that's the sort of leverage that you get by having this kind of framework. That's very cool. But it's the wow. sort of thing that just sounds kind of crazy, right? Like, why should I build a new query language? SQL is right there. It's perfectly fine. Uh, and the answer is, you know, you have to take a trustful. You have to, you know, believe that <laughs> it's going to work. 
uh, in order for it to make sense. Because learning a brand new system always feels like a suboptimal step. It's like a fixed cost that I have to do up front and the benefits accrue sort of later. There are a lot of examples where this has worked out really well. One of them is uh, the company where I previously used to work, which deployed a Trustfall-based system that has queries like, uh, are we trying to deploy a Python project that requires a version of Python different than the Python installed in the Docker file it's deploying with? Ah, okay. Yeah, that's a good right? thing to so know. That's a query across, you know, mono repo, the projects defined inside that repo, the configuration files that govern deployment, which touches Kubernetes, parse the Docker file, figure out what Python version is in the Docker file, and then compare against the metadata of the project itself. This is a query just as much as the, you know, did I delete a type in the new version is in Cargo Sanford checks. And you just don't have to worry about understanding how all of these different systems interconnect. You can just write this query and not have to be an expert about the performance or any of the other implementation details of other stuff. So it's kind of a debugging prevention, tech debt, discovery and mitigation sort of tool that would have been entirely possible, but probably not very likely to be built because it would have required a little bit too much glue, a little bit, you know, <laughs> too many moving pieces in, in too many sorts of different places, right? Oh no, Dockerfile now has a V3 format versus the V2 format, okay, rewrite all of the queries, actually just forget about it, it's not worth it, right? Right. Here it's a very localized change in one place and one adapter, and so nothing else notices, all the queries just keep working. This is the sort of thing that's not obvious a priori, so that's why I named the project Trustful, because when you have it, the benefits are super obvious. Until you've tried it, it's just so easy to, to dismiss and say, this will never work, I think this is vaporware. Wow, that's cool. I I, I hope it, uh, it, it catches on and that a lot of people end up uh, publishing really cool results they got from it. Me too. Uh, I'm working very hard on it. There are definitely a bunch of people using it, but uh, as always with any sort of relatively new project, there's all sorts of speed bumps. There's all sorts of, you know, ergonomics could be better kinds of cases. So if anyone listening to this tries this out and you find it not exactly to your liking, I would really love to hear why and how it could be better. I'm not always able to, to act on it on day one, but I do keep that in mind and I do try to make things better with every release. Awesome. Anything else we should talk about uh, before we wrap up? I think we did a very, very solid roundup of topics. Thank you so much for having me on yeah, the show. Thanks for joining me. This is this great discussion. I learned a bunch of stuff and I'm excited to see uh, what comes next. Thanks. Thank you. 